everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Pensburg Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Behanna, joined, as always, with Jim Rixner, Hooks Orpic. Jim, how are you doing? Doing great. Welcome, everybody, to episode 42. Who you got, Garrett, for your favorite or best number 42 in Penguins history? Uh, well, slim pickings here, Jim. I- I'm going to go with defenseman Dylan Reese, who I believe he only spent one season he yeah, he spent one season with the Pittsburgh Penguins in the 2012-2013 season, primarily as a minor leaguer, but he is a Pittsburgh native. So for the my favorite number 42 has to go to Dylan Reese. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll go with Dustin Jeffrey. Uh, prospect with some potential didn't quite get there, but pretty fun player to watch nonetheless. And I guess with that out of the way, we should get into the playoff series, huh? Well, uh, Jim, last the last time we recorded last week, I thought in the back of my mind that you and I would be sitting here and the Penguins would be out in front of the Canadians, presumably with a two games to one lead. And seven days later, uh, things could not have gone worse for the Penguins in that regard, as it's the Canadians who, as of this recording, hold a two to one series lead. The Penguins are on the brink of of playoff elimination once again. So, Jim, let's get into it. We'll spend a little bit of time recapping the last couple of games that the Penguins have played, starting with Game 1. And, Jim, the common theme that I think you could use for this entire series, but Game 1 in particular, is that it was a game of missed opportunities for the Penguins. And the things that I wanted to talk about this game... There are a couple of big factors that I think led to the Penguins losing this game in overtime to the Canadians. The fact that Connor Sherry missed uh, what probably would have been a game-winning penalty shot late in that first game. The Penguins were 1-for-7 on their power play in Game 1. They had a roughly 90-second two-man advantage, a 5-on-3 power play, and yet they still fall to the Canadians in that game. I believe they... They uh, lose that game, what was it, 3-2 to two in overtime? Yes, 3-2 to two overtime loss thanks to Jeff Petrie's overtime goal for the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, a game of missed chances, missed opportunities, and it left a sour taste in my mouth after that, after that first contest. Jim, what about your thoughts on game one? Definitely. I think you nailed the, the high spots there. It's, it was disappointing. Connor Sherry couldn't win it with the penalty shot. Penguins had the seven overtime chances, like you mentioned, including one in overtime that they failed. The five on three hurt. Just um, going down two nothing in the game hurt, and that really kind of set the tone, I think, for the whole series. In that Montreal, you know, like everyone else, didn't know what to expect. But then when they get out to a two nothing lead, they realize and remember, hey, we can play with these guys. There's no reason why we can't compete and we can't win periods, which turns into winning games. And then once a team believes in themselves like that, they're they're even tougher to knock out, and the Penguins have run into that in a major way now. And so with missed opportunities out of the way in the first game, we move on to Game 2, and roughly four to five minutes into the first period of Game 2, Sidney Crosby re- reverses the fortunes, I should say, of the Penguins, he gets, the, he gets his Penguins team on the board first, which I think through the first three games of this series, Jim, 
and you could really say this for any playoff series, it's kind of cliche at this point, but getting the ability to score first and maintaining that early lead for your team certainly uh, can do wonders for a team's momentum throughout the rest of the game. Crosby does that here, gets the team on the board first. The Penguins end up winning this game 3-1. to one. They end up beating Carey Price three times. Uh, the thing about this game, and you, you, you summarized it in your Pennsburg recap, it didn't really look like it was a convincing win, at least in my opinion. Uh, a win is a win nonetheless, and you'll take that if you're the Penguins. It didn't really look like everything was perfectly in sync. However, they, they, they find a way to win, and even that series at one-to-one. Uh, what, are your, what, what, what were some of the big thoughts that you saw coming in with this uh, Game 2 victory, 3-1 to one for the Penguins here? Right, yeah, a lot of what you said I agree with, including, you know, if, if you look at it, that game was mostly a one nothing game for the entire first period, the full second period, and then until halfway in the third. So, again, you have Montreal just hanging around and one crazy bounce or they're one shot away, and we've seen them score on the rush a couple of times. So, you know, when you let a team hang that close, I think you're always on the edge of of disaster, so to say. And and it didn't happen this game. Um, I thought Matt Murray was really, really good. Um the Penguins, again, had more power play opportunities, especially in that second period and an, another long five on three. And they just couldn't put the Canadians in the rearview mirror. But f- for the process of the game, the Pens were out in front. They had the lead the whole way. I mean, they were threatened, but they still, you know, they were up to the challenge. They they passed the test on game two. And at that point, it looked like they were studied and heading in the right direction and everything was going well and good in the way I guess I think we thought it was. Like you lose game one, but it was a close game. There were a couple breaks that didn't go your way. Overtime loss, eh, you know, that, that easily could have swung the other way. And then game two, the Pens control it. They seem to be putting their stamp a little bit more on the series and say we're, we're good, we're getting there. And then we get to game three, don't we, Garrett? Jim, I'm going to be upfront with you. I think we're going to spend quite a little bit talking about this game three just because of the things that happened in this game and the possible outcomes that could come because the Penguins ended up losing game three. And let's get into it. Uh, things don't get off to the best start. Uh, Shea Weber gets the early first tally for the Canadians and the, the, the Penguins are all of a sudden find themselves down one nothing. Uh, this was a really, uh, really interesting play uh, within the first five minutes of the contest here. Shea Weber basically had an open net to score after Matt Murray makes what I, th- I think it was two to three saves in a row and Shea Weber, the puck finds Shea Weber's stick and Shea Weber's basically staring at uh, an open net after he joins the rush and the play basically started. I think it was due to a Jack Johnson turnover uh, as the Penguins were heading into their offensive zone. And uh, we're going to, we're going to certainly touch on that Jack Johnson, Justin Schultz pairing uh, momentarily after this recap, but uh the Canadians get out to this one nothing lead, and uh, then all of a sudden the Penguins come back into the second period, and they manage to score three goals, and it looks like, okay, the Penguins are up 3-1 to one again. Uh, I wouldn't say it's similar to game, it's only similar to game two in that they had a 3-1 lead. And I'm sitting there, Jim, after the Penguins rally for three goals, you think that, like you said, their, their juices are starting to get flowing, and you know they're starting to put their stamp on this game. This was the moment 
that I thought the Penguins were going to really command this series from this point forward. You'd think with a three-goal lead or a, a three-to-one lead that the Penguins could at least get another one. If, if Jim, if they make this game four-to-one. Montreal is basically dead in the water, and I think that game goes a completely different direction. However, as we know now, Montreal climbed, climbs all the way back, and the Penguins lose 4-3 to three in what was a monumental collapse. Uh, boy, this game this game 3, Jim, it was infuriating to watch on so many levels, given uh, how the Penguins responded after going down one nothing. Uh, there are going to be a lot of things we're going to talk about in this game in particular that I want to address and uh, some of the outcomes that we could see going into game four. Um, well, boy, Jim, this this game was just, I, I can't even describe it. Mike Sullivan had no answers for it after the game. I, I listened to Mike Sullivan's post-game press conference. He seemed somewhat dumbfounded at the fact that what he, what he just watched for the previous 60 minutes of hockey, he had really no answers for the media scrum. I, I've never seen Mike Sullivan uh, seem so beside himself it was he has no answers i don't know if Sidney crosby has any answers jim i don't have any answers uh what are your thoughts on the, the canadians now going up two to one in this series after the penguins lose game three like you said it was it was just a really bad 30 minutes and certainly you go up three to one or somewhat early in the second period and the way they did it too with the fourth line generating that goal it it looked like everything was going in the pen's direction but then John Reno took a holding penalty. The Penguins kill it off. But soon after, uh, Drew Ann just outpositions Justin Schultz and gets an easy tip into the net. And that kind of, again, just let the brought the Montreal back within one. I think they knew at the same time that they had a bad open to the game, yet they were only down one goal at that point. So that kind of fed into their confidence and momentum. And before too long, they had it tied and had the lead. So... I think it kind of goes back into the theme of the whole series I was talking about, that the Penguins let Montreal hang around. Montreal has something good happen for them, which usually happens when a certain defense pair is on the ice. And because of that, they you know, start playing better and they start scoring more. And whether or not anyone has any answers, that that's true. I mean, you know, coming off a, a loss like that, it's stunning because halfway through a game, if you're up two goals in the playoffs, you shouldn't lose that game. That that should be a game a team wins almost every time. So I don't blame them for being so, you know, dumbfounded or, or out of answers. I think you just got to put this one behind you and get ready for the next one because it, it's not going to do any good to dwell on that. It happened. It's over. I do think, you know, it could raise questions. The Penguins are having so much trouble with the team. I mean, look, the Montreal Canadiens lost to the Detroit Red Wings four times this season. This is not a very good Montreal team, yet they're giving the Pens a lot of trouble, and there's no doubt about that. What does that say about the Pens? If next round, if they even make it, they're probably, it looks like at this point, they would either have to play the Washington Capitals or Boston Bruins as the fourth seed. And if you're having trouble with the Montreal Canadiens, a team that's really just happy to be here, what happens when you play a team that made the Stanley Cup final last year like Boston or a team that won the Stanley Cup two years ago like Washington? That that gets a lot more daunting if the Pens even make it out of this. But I guess um, to circle back to game three, it just, you know, it's a lot of things. Mike Sullivan made one lineup change after the win of game two into game three. He benched Jared McCann. And if you go back, you were talking about that first goal. Sam Lafferty, who's not very good at faceoffs, got kicked out of the faceoff 
and Patrick Hornquist, who doesn't really even take face-offs, had to take it. He got the puck back to Jack Johnson, and then the comedy of errors started. So just all the decisions, I think, from Sullivan, from the team, didn't work out. And the troubling thing is, you know, you, we can go goal by goal and blame who's to blame. Is the, could the goalie have stopped this? What happened with defense here? Who was not backchecking, et cetera? But the problem is, once that game is tied and then the Penguins are losing, they didn't step up at all. They didn't have any sort of a push or effort to make a goal. And that's, I think, is the troubling thing is uh, watching that game. I never thought for a second when that game was 3-3 three to three, or the Pens losing 3-4 to four, that they were ever going to be in any position to get another goal. They just looked like they were spinning their wheels and had no answers for what was going to come. And to me, it seemed obvious, you know, once that game was 3-2 to two and 3-3, three to three, that they were in very deep trouble in that game. And I guess, Jim, to your point, I completely. Uh, first off, I completely agree with everything you said. It seems like the the Penguins, they get shell shocked, and when they get shell shocked, they have no answer on the ice. They they can't combat the Canadians. They they have they have no. It, it starts, you know, Sullivan, like I said, had no answer, no answer whatsoever for the the post game presser. And it seems like you know once the once the Penguins face any sort of adversity, they sort of just recede into a shell and. Like you said, they have no—they had no answer for anything, and I guess that can kind of segue into what I want to talk about next. There were there are some positives to take away in this series so far. Uh, that being, you know, a, a lot of individual performances. More specifically, I, I want—I'm referring to Jason Zucker has two goals. Uh, Sidney Crosby has two goals. John Marino has looked excellent in playing in uh, increased playing time, ice time. Uh, he's look, he doesn't look like a rookie at all. Those are three guys right off the bat that I think are having a really good series. But Jim, I, I think in saying that when looking at these two guys, Zucker and Crosby specifically, because this top six really, I don't know, is, is it Jim, do they have no answers because they're not getting a, a, a lack of contributions from anyone besides Sidney Crosby? Uh, you'd think with so much firepower on this team, in that top six, just in that top six alone, they've had a career year from Brian Rust. Evgeny Malkin was said to look otherworldly leading up to this play-in series. He was he was a man on a mission in these scrimmages. They brought in Jason Zucker, and he's looked to be an immediate fit with this squad. Uh, on, on the first line, Jake Gensel looks to be fully healthy from his injury. And for the most part, I think he has a goal. But other than that, he's looked pretty much invisible. Sidney Crosby, like I like I said to start, you know, he has two goals. He scored first yes in in uh, game three. And Connor Sherry, uh, in my opinion, has been up and down. He's had some good chances, you know. But looking at that top six, they should be getting more contributions from all of these guys, and they're not. I don't know if that's part of the reason why that they're this team all of a sudden is in the position they're in. But uh, I've I, again I just don't have any answers for you. I can't describe it. I, I don't understand. This is the number 24 ranked team in this tournament. They were selling off asset after asset at the trade deadline, just looking to pack it in, and they're having so much trouble scoring and and getting contributions from the guys who should be scoring night in and night out. None of it's happening. Yeah, there's definitely something to that, and. To start, I mean, first things first, you have to give credit to Carey Price because he's played a really great series. 
And also, I think Montreal's defense, their top two pairs especially, have played really well with Ben Chariot and Shea Weber on the top pair, and then Brett Kulak and Jeff Petrie on the second pair. All four of those guys have had exceptional series. So when you're dealing with a really good goalie and a defense that's playing well together, that's an uphill battle. But to your point, the Penguins have eight goals in the three games, one of which was Jake Gensel's empty netter. So really they have seven goals on price in three games, which that's just not going to cut it. The Penguins are an offensive team. And I think you're right about Sherry. He's inconsistent. He was actually named the first star of the game in game two. He had two assists, including that really nice pass over for Zucker, which proved to be the game winner. That's right, so yeah. That, yeah, so he was great there, but game one and three, especially game three, Sherry was not very good. He was losing the puck. He took a penalty. He was down on his knees, floundering around. So I think that's part of the problem is that when Sherry's not producing points, he's probably a negative a lot of times, or he's he you know, you know he's he's not going to help Gensel and Crosby. Uh, I think I'm a little more favorable on Gensel than you from the sound of it, even though you didn't really expand on that. I think Kensel's been fine. He has three points in three games. He made the really nice pass to set Crosby up. Otherwise, that goal wouldn't happen at the start of game two. So I don't really have an issue with him. Um, could he be doing more? Yeah, I guess so. Everybody could. Zucker, I agree, has just been great. I'd like to see them use Patrick Hornquist a little more because I think he's one of the few forwards who's, you know, he's getting to the front of the net. He's making life tough for Carey Price. And I think Hornquist is one of those guys, he's a catalyst. He's going to make something happen. He's going to get some energy, and maybe that will rub off. So, yeah, maybe if we talk about what changes could be in store, but I think one of the obvious ones is get Hornquist up on Crosby's line a little bit, mix and match there a little more because that's what you need. And and then um, Malkin not producing is tough. He has one assist in the three games, and he made a really nice pass for that assist in game three. But you definitely need Malkin to score some goals. And Chris Letang, one of the best defensive point scorers in the league, no points in three games. And he plays a lot of power play time. He had a shot last night on Carey Price that was kind of similar and kind of similar in the situation that Jeff Petrie scored the game winning goal on Matt Murray, kind of an angle shot. Uh, Petrie lifted it top shelf. Latang didn't quite lift his top shelf, and it hit Carey Price. So that's kind of the execution differences right now where I think we're all surprised that Jeff Petrie's making a play to score a goal and win a game, and Chris Latang isn't making the same play. Or, you know, Kotka Niemi scoring some goals. Malkin's not scoring some goals. So who could have called that? I don't know. But there's still time to turn it around, too. It's, it's you know, it, it's a short series, which is a blessing and a curse. But... Another thing, too, is Game 4, Friday night, today as this podcast drops, and then Game 5 is Saturday. It's a back-to-back. It's quick, so it depends where to win Game 4. Maybe they're feeling better, and they'll have some confidence and momentum, and it's a quick turn to get right back out there, and then anything could happen in Game 5. So, well, it's not looking good, and they need a lot more from some of their top players to actually score. They're not out yet, so I guess we'll see. And, Jim, we kind of alluded to it earlier, and it's one of the big things that has become a talking point, uh, especially after the Game 3 defeat, is the defensive pairing of Jack Johnson and Justin Schultz. I think, um, you know, we, we've talked so many times. We've spent hours on hours talking about uh, the fact that Jack Johnson shouldn't be on this hockey team. He shouldn't be on that ice every night, yet Mike Sullivan continues to deploy him with Justin Schultz. Uh 
if, if my stats are correct, Jack Johnson has been on the ice for five of the eight goals against uh, in this series. And I believe it was uh, the Athletics' Jesse Marshall who tweeted during the game, uh, game three, at some point it stops becoming a coincidence that Jack Johnson is just on the ice for all of these goals against. And it starts to become the fact that the Canadians are scoring with the Penguins' two worst defensemen on the ice. They're finding all of these chances because of uh, whether it be Jack Johnson, Jack Johnson's really inability to play the puck heading into the offensive zone or uh, just both of these defensemen really don't have any confidence right now. And in Jack Johnson's case, everyone's talked about how bad of a defenseman he's been since day one. Looking at possible changes for game four or uh, game, uh, yeah, game four, excuse me. Um, since you kind of alluded to it, what kind of changes could be made to see what uh, what the Penguins might be able to do? Because like you said, the Penguins will have to beat Carey Price two nights in a row in that back-to-back scenario. Will Jack Johnson and or Justin Schultz, do you think, Jim, do you think either of them or both of them will be scratched in favor of a Yuso Rikula or, or Chad Ruedel combination or, or something of the like? Well, if it's do I think they should be? Yes, easily, definitely. Um, to expand on what you said just a little, Jack Johnson played less than 11 even strength minutes last night and was on the ice for three goals against. And they try to hide him like that offensive zone draw for the first goal of the game. They're, they're trying to put him in situations where he's not going to hurt them. But his play is just so bad, it's going to hurt them. It's just a matter of how much. And in a series where they have no margin of error since Carey Price is playing so well, and Montreal is scrappy, like they're not going away. They're they're working hard. They're not talent, that talented, but they're trying really hard. And when you try really hard, good things happen, and it reduces the Penn's margin of error even less. Playing Jack Johnson has taken that margin of error away. If you look at games one and game three, the games they lost, he's been – a terrible player and that hurts them. So I think they should, will they? I, I don't know. Mike Sullivan has been very loyal to those guys and I don't think he trusts Ricola at all to play. I mean, they were using Chad Ruedel as a fourth right-handed defenseman over Ricola. If they had to play him, they were playing him as a fourth line forward for a bit. So I find it hard to believe in a playoff game and an elimination game that they're going to have any trust or faith in him which is a shame because his, his numbers aren't bad. So you'd think they would would have some time for him, but they just don't. Um, I do think Chad Ruedel will get in the game, either for one of Schultz or Johnson. And it's kind of like pick your poison, I guess, of, of which player you want you think is worse. And the case could be made that Justin Schultz was even worse than Jack Johnson in game three. And I think that case could be made easily. So I wouldn't be surprised if Justin Schultz comes out. And I don't think that's a, a bad move either. He probably needs to sit because the only change that um, Selvin's made so far was to bench Jared McCann, who hasn't been good. But along that line, will they go ahead and, and scratch Patrick Marlowe too? That would take some guts. But Patrick Marlowe's done nothing and if you're going to want some energy or a guy like Lafferty to play, I, I would have even played Evan Rodriguez over Lafferty. But why, at this point, why keep going with Marlowe, who's given you nothing and who looks lost in coverage and is doing nothing offensively? I think up, up front they should make some changes too. And then the goalie question is still around too, which goalie they want to start or who to do there. So those I think would be the most likely changes. Probably one new defenseman, maybe consider at forward if you're leaving Lafferty in, 
bring in Rodriguez and what to do with Marlowe and then what to do with Nett. Jim, I was surprised that, uh, and I think you were, you, you wrote about it in your game three recap that the Penguins went with Sam Lafferty over Evan Rodriguez, specifically on that third line and the scratching of Jared McCann, because if, if, if memory serves, I don't think I've ever seen Sam Lafferty play the center position. I thought he was a natural winger when he was called up. And I believe Evan Rodriguez is a natural center. Uh, so, I mean, I know Sullivan said he wanted that energy, that I don't that burst of speed or energy or whatever to describe Sam Lafferty on that, that third line. Uh, I was really, I was really interested in seeing um, his decision to pick Sam Lafferty over Evan Rodriguez, but I agree with you in that uh, I, I, I think Patrick Marlowe should probably be scratched. If I was constructing that, if I was constructing that line, uh, I'd, pr- I'd put Sam Lafferty on that uh, on the left wing. I'd put Evan Rodriguez in the center position. And uh, if you want to move Patrick Hornquist up to Crosby's line, maybe put Sherry down on that third line. Uh, if you want to keep Brian Rust and Evgeny Malkin together for now, but that yeah, that was an interesting um, interesting roster move that I personally don't think worked out in Mike Sullivan's favor. Um, what else? You talked about the the goalie situation too. I thought about it last night, or uh, I thought about it after the conclusion of of uh, Game Three, whether Mike Sullivan would just go to Tristan Jari as to maybe he thinks Jari would provide a little bit of a spark in, in the in, with uh, the rest of the players. I don't I don't buy into the fact that players seem to play better in front of a specific goalie, but uh, if Mike Sullivan's looking for a spark, maybe switching Murray for Tristan Jari might might do something along those lines too. But uh, the, boy, the, we're going to be watching this lineup, these these lineup decisions for Game Four, like a hawk, I would think. Definitely. Um, and to close the loop on what you said, Sam Lafferty did take 236 faceoffs this year. He can play a little bit of center, but I I would agree that wing is probably going to be his better position in the NHL, which makes it all the more curious. You're throwing a, a guy in who's probably not a great center at the NHL level into a playoff game to do that and he was on the ice for the first goal and basically got benched after that so yeah I I was surprised it wasn't Rodriguez but Sam Lafferty was excellent in the phase three training camp which I think could be a little misleading because a player like Lafferty who has a lot of energy who hustles around the ice who is going to give a great effort at all times is bound to stand out and look good in that kind of inner squad scrimmage type of setting so I think that weighed heavily on Sullivan's mind, knowing that Lafferty was really bringing it and looking good in the camp games. So why not give him a try to see if that could spark the third line? But yeah, that that one backfired, and now they're left in the same situation where that third line, which really is the fourth line with how they're using it, is just kind of a black hole that's nothing good's happening. So where they go from there is interesting. If um, I mean, he's got a plenty of choices, so... Whatever option he chooses, if it works, he'll look like a genius no matter what it is. If it doesn't work, he'll look like a big dummy and everyone will say, oh, you should have stuck with Murray. You know, if Jari, who hasn't played in months in a meaningful game, comes in and gives up three or four goals in the first two periods, then it'll be, oh, you should have stuck with Murray who got you here. But if Murray does the same, oh, you should have started Jari. So in some ways you can't win no matter what if you lose, but – you know, hopefully whatever choices he make will pay off and will kind of provide a spark because obviously the team needs it right now. 
And uh, Jim, let's let's flip that switch. Let, let's get a little spicy here. We have to talk about it because by the time the, the next podcast comes out, the Penguin season could be over. Uh, they, they could be waiting to see if they get the first overall pick, uh, Alexis Lafreniere. Uh, we have to talk about it because the Penguins are in this two-to-one series hole. Let's talk about the short-term and possible long-term ramifications if the Penguins lose this series, which first would be, in my opinion, it would just be a monumental collapse of epic proportions. And I, I, I don't mean to exaggerate, but the fact that uh, you lose to the New York Islanders, who were an inferior opponent one year ago, who everyone thought at, the po- at that point in time, the Penguins would beat the New York Islanders, they end up getting swept. Uh, not a lot of changes happened to that roster other than the Phil Kessel trade, which was, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was being murmured that he probably wouldn't finish his career as a penguin anyway. So I think you were starting to expect that Kessel wouldn't be here. He ends up getting traded anyway for Alex Gauchenyuk. We know how that worked out. Uh, that was probably the biggest change, uh, roster construction wise after they get swept by the Islanders. But if they lose to the number 24 ranked team in this tournament, in uh, what in the world do you do if you're Jim Rutherford? I mean, I don't think you would. You, would you consider blowing this whole thing up? What would you consider? Because you would have to think some roster, some sort of roster transaction would come, whether it be uh, a top six winger getting traded, or a top six forward getting traded, or someone on the D getting traded, or the uh, Matt Murray possibly being traded for a package, something crazy would happen because I don't think Jim Rutherford is the kind of guy that would uh, let that kind of roster uh, after losing, potentially losing two series and two straight years in the fashion that they would have if they lose to the Canadians, he wouldn't let that go. He wouldn't let that sit. I don't think he's, the, I don't think he's that kind of general manager. Jim, do you have any sort of thoughts on what you might think could happen? You know, I, I've seen on Twitter, if the Penguins lose, uh, a possible Jack Johnson buyout is is in the cards, especially because the salary cap isn't increasing. You know, just eat some of that dead salary for uh, the next couple of years until the contract eventually expires. Get Jack Johnson off this team. I, I've seen that. Uh, some of the guys that have been on this team for the last several years, guys like Patrick Hornquist, Brian Rust, I don't know if Connor Sherry w- would return. Uh, Patrick Marlowe isn't coming back. I don't think the core. I don't think the core is going to be touched. And when I talk about the core, uh, Chris Letang, Evgeny Malkin, Sidney Crosby. I think those three players are going to be Penguins for life. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about those players. Uh, would Brian Dumoulin potentially be traded to send a message to the locker room? I don't know. There are so many what-if scenarios, and the Penguins haven't lost the series yet. They could win. They could beat Carey Price two games in a row and advance to the the traditional first round of the playoffs. They could definitely do it. But things have told me through the first three games of this series that if the Penguins, uh, you you know, if they kind of recede back into their shell, if they get shell-shocked like I described earlier, if they end up finding a way to lose to the Canadians, changes are going to be made. It's just a matter of who gets gets taken to where, who gets released, who gets traded. Uh, Jim, I think I've... It's time for me to get off my soapbox. (laughs) Yeah, something's going to happen, that's for sure. But if you look at the Penguins... There's might not be that much they can do. A lot of their players have no trade clauses, like Patrick Hornquist is one, and most of their core players. And a lot of them are full no trade clauses. So if those guys don't want to go, they're not going. 
So um, the mandate is to build a team around Crosby and Malkin that can compete for cups. So I don't think Brian Dumoulin's within in question at all for what he does and the minutes he provides and the, his level of play. He's a guy who's doing more help than harm by far. Same, I think, is said for Jason Zucker, Brian Russ, Jake Gensel. Those guys are the guys you need, and they're not the reason the Penguins are in this situation. You have to look to why the Penguins are in this situation, and that starts in, in the goal, I would say, just because there's two guys who need contracts there. Would Matt Murray come back, be coming back? Would he be moved on? I, I think that's possible if they lose. Would, you know, you have to look at the defense. Something has to change. I don't know how they buy out or trade Johnson. Maybe they'll do one or the other, but they just, they have to get him off the team and redo kind of the bottom end of, of the defense. Justin Schultz's contract's up. He's a goner. Nick Bukesad still has one year left, but he's always been hurt. He's got to get gone. Jared McCann needs a contract, but now he's a healthy scratch and they're obviously not happy with what he's brought. Does he come back as a restricted free agent or is he guy now that they move into the future without? I think that's a possibility, more of a possibility now than it was a week ago. So you have to keep that in mind. But yeah, I, I would look kind of towards the lower end of the roster to make changes and see what you can do to revamp the third line, revamp the defensive depth outside of your top four who you have all signed up for a while and who are all pretty good players playing well. That's really what they should do. But who knows if, you know, emotions run high, especially with a guy like Rutherford. So who knows what he might try to do. And the other thing you didn't mention is it's, it's hard to trade a bunch of players, but it's easy to fire one coach or two coaches. And Jared Gallant's out there, the former Vegas coach, he's considered a good coach. Mike Vellucci in Wilkes-Barre is considered an, a riser. And Sullivan, no one was really happy when Mike Sullivan was hired or thought he was a really good coach. So you can find NHL coaches from out of nowhere, really, that can emerge and be great. And I don't know if it's a good idea or if it would happen, but I certainly think you have to assess where Mike Sullivan is if his team loses a series, especially with some of these lineup decisions we've been talking about. And Jim, to your point, that which is excellent, by the way, I didn't even consider the fact of making possibly making a coaching change uh, that just brought up into my head. I remember reading on Twitter last night. I believe Mike Sullivan is one and eight or one and nine in his last nine or ten postseason games, which uh, is how do I say not good uh, for for a t for a coach like Mike Sullivan, who obviously has championships to his name at this point. He's won with this squad before, but you're right. Maybe we, we know NHL coaches typically don't have a long shelf life for whatever reason, whether the message gets stale, players don't buy in, whatever, whatever. But boy, that is an interesting, um, interesting uh, scenario to, to bring up. One, again, that I didn't even consider possibly uh, ousting Mike Sullivan as head coach. That is going to be interesting if, if it gets to that point. And uh, Jim Rutherford, feels that that kind of change is necessary if a roster kind of construction change for a lower depth guy, you know, if, if that's not there. That's going to be really interesting to watch. But, Jim, we're going to get to our final segment of the Pennsburg podcast. It is our mailbag segment, uh, my favorite segment of the podcast. If you're a longtime listener or first-time listener, if you're finding us during the NHL's return to play, uh, and you'd like to submit a uh, question for our Pennsburg podcast, you can do so by following our Pennsburg podcast Twitter account. And every week we will post a, a tweet asking for your participation 
uh, in our mailbag segment. We love getting all sorts of crazy, wacky, fun, interesting questions from all all around the Twitter sphere. Uh, Jim, so like you do every week, you get first crack uh, at this question from Cole Del Vecchio, who asks, outside of the Penguin series, what series has been your favorite so far and why? Hey, Cole. Uh, my favorite so far would probably be the Chicago-Edmonton series. I like watching goals. I wish those games weren't on so late all the time, but it's always fun to watch Connor McDavid play and do his thing. And that's, that's another situation where I wonder what the NHL is going to think because Edmonton's a five seed and they are losing as we record this two games to one. The Penguins are a five seed. They're losing to a 12 seed two games to one, and it's only five-game series. So I think when we look back at this whole play-in thing, we'll we'll think just how unfair this was to, like, the fifth seed, the sixth seed, the seventh seed, teams that would have made the playoffs if it was a normal year. But I guess that's just a little aside. Are you watching anything around the league, Garrett? What's your what's standing out to you? You took my answer, Jim. I was uh, I, with a, Yeah, without, I think that would be many people. <laughs> without question. I mean, I watched the game uh, a couple of nights ago. Connor McDavid registered a hat trick, and uh, I saw, uh, I saw they, the NHL brought uh, hat throwers for, in the case of players scoring hat tricks. So they were throwing some hats out onto the ice, even with no fans. Yeah. But yeah, yeah I, with uh, Svechnikov, I think that same day, and by by the nighttime they they already had it fixed in an answer. So yes. yeah, I think the NHL's done a really good job with this whole thing. You know, a difficult circumstance, but I don't think there can be many complaints with the job that they've done pulling this off so far. Okay, our second question comes to us from Blutarski, who says more of a funny question. But what do you guys think of Jack Johnson's media scrum attire? And I guess to explain this, on Wednesday, Jack Johnson was in a Dunder Mifflin shirt from The Office. Uh, Jim, I don't know. Are, are you an Office fan? Have you have you watched The Office before? Yeah, sure. Who, who isn't? <laughs> so, um, okay. So you're familiar with it. I think I, maybe it's a little bit of foreshadowing, Jim. No, I'm kidding. But maybe maybe Jack Johnson should be. Uh, maybe he should be in Wilkes-Barre Scranton, where uh, Whoa, I like where you're, the you're Dunder Mifflin. Yeah, where the Dunder Mifflin office is. Maybe maybe he should be there playing with the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins. Yeah, I was going to say his favorite character is probably like Andy Bernard or something. He oh, my seems God. like that to me. <laughs> he is the Andy Bernard of the Penguins, or maybe even the Toby of the Penguins. Who knows? Oh, it gives me even more reason just not to root for the guy. I'm sure, like, I see Jack Johnson get described in articles all the time. He's a stand-up guy, and he's a great guy to the media. So, like, I don't want to rag on his, like, personal life, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I judge him strictly from an on-ice perspective. He's terrible on the ice. So, you know, send, send him to Wilkes-Barre Scranton on the, other, on the other side of the state where, you know, we don't have to watch him on a nightly basis. All right. The, the Battle on the Boards podcast is back for the second week in a row, and they want to know... How do we inject some juice into the power play that has been more of a power outage lately? I like the word choice there. Montreal has done well in shutting down a lot of the side-to-side passes. I like the move getting Horny back up there to disturb Price's kitchen. Side note, if we start to make them pay on the power play, maybe they will stop doing dangerous actions to get them. Example, cross-checking Sidney Crosby in the face. Well, that's got to be the longest tweet ever. Um <laughs> I think the answer was kind of in the question that the best thing they could do is put Hornquist back on the first unit. Other than that, it kind of is what it is at this point. They were 16th in the league 
in the regular season. So it's not like them not scoring a ton is, is all that odd. And really after game three, now they're hitting at about the rate they should be. It's just disappointing situationally where they've been letdowns. Um, but that's another, I think, change possibility you have to consider is what good is Mark Recchi really doing for this team and his role and as the power play coach because it seems like they need a fresh voice or new ideas or, or something that's not in the mix now they need brought in, I, I would think. But, they're I mean, they're not going to fire the coach before next game, so uh, that's, that's not going to be the answer. So who knows? I, I think you just got to hope that whether it's Malkin, Crosby, Latang, somebody makes a play, somebody scores a goal, and I guess those are guys are good guys to bet on. Okay, Zach Jarrett checks in and says, does a solid postseason performance by Matt Murray change the landscape of potential offseason deals? Are trade rumors quieted, or does Jerry find suddenly find himself on the block? This question must have came before Game 3. <laughs> so, uh, Matt Murray's current save percentage through this playoff is 914, with a 250 goals against average. Uh, I don't have the I don't have the save percentage leaders in front of me, or nor the goals against leaders in front of me. Uh, but a 914 average in this very small sample size doesn't seem all that good. Um, let's see. Uh, a solid postseason performance. I don't think Matt Murray has been dreadful. Uh, I think there are a couple of goals he's let in over the course of this series have been a little iffy. Um, but a solid postseason. If Matt Murray starts the next two games and he gets a shutout in one of those games, I guess you know, maybe that, that quiets his, his status down. Uh, maybe they stick with him. Uh, we've talked about the, the goalie situation for how many weeks now? Uh, will they, won't they? It just depends on, it'll depend on what this series comes down to, how he, how Matt Murray finishes the series. And if Jari gets in game four and game five, how he finishes the series as well. Uh, but it's just going to have to be a waiting game until we get to the off season. And we'll have to reflect on what both goalies have done um, throughout the regular season and this tournament here, if they get eliminated early on, or if they make a long run, if 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 they ride the back of Murray, uh, if they ride the back of Murray into a a deep playoff run, you know, maybe that ch- again that changes uh, the landscape of potential offseason deals. But right now, it's just a, a wait and see kind of thing, I think. Yeah, and that's been the the answer all season. I think we've gotten this question in some form every week of what the future is in that or what was going to happen with Matt Murray and it's not like he's going to have a shutout for five straight games and a light's going to shine down from the heavens and we go oh he's he's the guy we're going with him and at the same time he's not going to be anti-Niemi and give up five goals a game in the first period every time he starts and you realize oh we we can't win with this guy get him out of here and that's what we see in this playoff like Murray in games one and two was really, really good and pretty much going save for save with Carey Price, who's been outstanding and who's considered one of the best goalies in the league. So if he plays like that, you can win with them. You can be right in the game, and I think he's fine. The goalie's fine. It's it's always going to get made a big deal of in Pittsburgh of, of, of the goalie performance, but Matt Murray is fine in games one and two. Games three, I think he'd won a couple of those goals back, and I think you it's it's not unfair to say you'd want one or two more saves than when he got you, especially with what you're dealing with. At the same time, the Penguins' defense is giving up a lot of rushes, and they're playing with fire, and they're going to get burned no matter who the goalie is. So I think we're bound to see that too. What happens, I, I mean, I, I think it's still wide open, and 
that gives that Sullivan's choice for game four. If he goes Tristan Jerry and they win game four, I don't know when Matt Murray gets back in, to be honest. Or if they he goes Tristan Jerry and they lose game four, the season's over anyways. So they're kind of at the end of the road here about what's going to happen. But for good or bad, I think Matt Murray has been okay. He's been pretty good. You know, it's it's not his fault they're losing in the series, but they're not winning in the series either. So what do you make of that? Who knows? All right, Jim, our last question of the week comes from, oh, I'm going to butcher this last name, Brian Ruska? I think maybe the H is silent. Yeah. yeah, Brian Ruska. Hell no. <laughs> what do you think would make Sid more uh, more dangerous as a player? Connor McDavid's speed or Mario Lemieux's size? This was a good question, and uh, I was watching some Sidney Crosby highlight videos over the long break, and I don't know if anyone quite skates like Connor McDavid, but probably, you know, 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, Crosby had some jets on him. He could burn through players, take on the whole team, and skate right through them. So he had some of those wheels, and, you know, he was an MVP caliber player a lot of those years. So I think I would go with Mario's size just because so few players have been like Mario Lemieux and the total package of having that size, that reach and still having the hands that he did and the vision that he did. And that just, I think makes it the whole nine yards. Did you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I, I looked at, uh, I, I was pretty certain before I even looked at this question that McDavid and Crosby share similar, uh, uh, similar height and weight differences. Uh, you know, I think McDavid's six one, Crosby's what 5'10, 5'11, they're both roughly 200 pounds. And I, I agree with you. Early on in his career, I, I did think Crosby had uh, had a really nice jump to him and he had some jets. So I was going to go with Mario's size all the way. Uh, you know, being 6'5, 6'6, like you said, having having those hands and the vision at the center position. Um, oh boy, that would that would that would make Crosby one one hell of a scary player. You know, it made Mario a scary player. No one wanted, I mean, Mario was getting whacked left, right, and center. It seemed like every night he went on the ice. So I'll go with Mario's size, and that'll be my final statement, Jim. Yeah, that's a good one for sure, and I think that's going to wrap up our mailbag for today. Yep, that'll wrap up the mailbag segment. And, Jim, I think unless you have anything else to add, that will wrap up this episode of the Pensburg Podcast. Look, everybody, everyone who's listening, uh, I hope that there's going to be another episode next week. There probably will be. They'll, yeah, if, it'll be a wrap-up or yeah. if nothing else, but yeah. Uh, so let's let's keep the faith, uh, and you know, let's hope that the Penguins find their mojo over the, the next one or two games, and uh, let's hope that this playoff train keeps going. But uh, for Jim Rixner, Hooks Orpic, I have been Garrett Behanna. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pensburg Podcast, and we will see you guys next week.